Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John. It was still the first day of the week. That evening, while the disciples were behind closed doors, because they were afraid of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. When the disciples saw the Lord, they were filled with joy. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they are not forgiven. Thomas, the one called Didymus, one of the twelve, wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he replied, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger in the wounds left by the nails, and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. After eight days his disciples were again in a house, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus entered and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into my side. No more disbelief. Believe. Thomas responded to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Jesus replied, Do you believe because you see me? Happy are those who don't see me and yet believe. Then Jesus did many other miraculous signs in his disciples' presence, signs that aren't recorded in this, in this scroll, but these things are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, and that believing you will have life in his name. Here ends the reading. Growing up in the U.S., uh, the cultural context surrounding Easter and things that you see in movies and in and, and, uh, TV shows and and whatnot, you get this idea of Jesus on the cross with nails in his hands. In fact, this photo that I'm using this week for the uh, for the title card shows this. It shows Jesus with a hole in his hand where the nail was, and um, you know, blood coming down. And yet, um, when they've done when they've talked about how crucifixions are actually done in, <laughs> or were done in, in the Roman Empire, uh, they didn't they didn't put nails into their hands. They they tied their wrists, and when people tried to recreate the nails in the in the hands, um, to see if it would work, they discovered that the nails under the body weight would actually would actually tear through the hand. Uh, you would have to either put the nail into the wrist uh, or tie the wrist. And so this this idea of of this kind of hole where the nail was in the in the middle of his hand that is so common to to all of of uh kind of uh our social consciousness in the US growing up with with Christianity and whatnot is it, actually highly unlikely <laughs> but but here it is here's this picture with with Jesus in uh with the hole in his hand and it comes from this this reading we had today about Thomas the doubter Thomas is always someone that I have identified pretty closely with, I think, in, in the Bible. You know, Thomas didn't uh, didn't doubt Jesus, didn't doubt who Jesus was, or uh, 
didn't doubt God or did, didn't doubt um, what Jesus said that he would do. He just doubted that his friends had seen Jesus after he had been crucified. Uh, Thomas is very, uh, very skeptical, very, very pessimistic, I guess. He, he really, he's like, no, unless I see it myself, I'm not going to believe it. This is also the only place uh, in the Gospels where we hear this story about the nails in the hands is in John's, John's Gospel. How many of us have uh, have been doubters in the past of this of the things that we've read, of the things that we've we've heard about Jesus, about God, about Christianity? I'm sure most, if not all, of you who are listening to this today have at some time or another, and perhaps even today continue to doubt your faith, doubt what the, the teachings tell us, doubt what the, the scriptures say. And for a lot of people, doubt is a, is a dangerous thing. People think that to doubt is to not have faith. And yet, I don't think that's true. And I, I, think, that, I think that Thomas is a good example of this. Jesus makes a comment. He says, you know, how much better it is, basically, for those who have believed without seeing. You know, he, he kind of berates Thomas for needing to see the holes and needing to see the, the wounds. But he doesn't kick Thomas out or, or you know, send Thomas to hell or, uh, you know, tell Thomas that he's no longer one of the twelve. I mean, this is, Thomas is one of the twelve. He's, he's one of the, the, the closest uh, disciples of Jesus, he, the twelve apostles. He's in Jesus' inner circle. Uh, certainly he was skeptical of the, the claim that Jesus had appeared among his friends because of just how unlikely that was. Especially considering the crucifixion and that they had buried him. It would have been extremely unlikely. And so I can understand how, Jesus, how uh, Thomas would have been doubting. And what Jesus does, he, Jesus comes to Thomas and shows him. And I think that in my own doubts, in my own times of doubt, um, God has often shown me what, uh, what I've been doubting about. This reading from John is interesting. So we've we've been reading. Uh, so we're we're doing the narrative lectionary, and and the narrative lectionary, the way it works, it, lectionary is a a set of readings throughout the church year, and the way that the uh, that the narrative lectionary works is it begins uh, with the the beginning of the Bible in Genesis, and it works all the way through for one year, but reading only one of the. Um, of the four gospels. And so you have a, it becomes a four year cycle where each year you read one of the, uh, one of the four gospels um, during this time ending in Easter. And next week we'll, we'll begin in uh, the book of Acts and then we'll go on to the epistles before we wrap up uh, the year. But this year we've gotten John's gospel and yet uh, it's traditional in, in other lectionaries in the, the kind of the standard lectionaries used by most of the church, the Catholic Church, the, the Episcopal Church, the Church of England, most of the mainstream churches in the U.S., all the lectionaries they use, they all use, they all use this or same reading from John's Gospel for this week, the second the second Sunday of Easter, and they almost they almost all, if not all, use the reading from John we had last week for the Easter reading as well. They seem to like John's interpretation of. 
Christ's resurrection, which I find really interesting because it doesn't mesh with the readings from the other three Gospels. And this is certainly something that we've had problems with with John in general, as we've been reading John this whole this whole time. John's version of Jesus' story is different than the other three. We have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're all pretty much the same. We call them the synoptic Gospels because they're all kind of synonymous. They all kind of work together. And then we have John over here by himself. John's Gospel was written last. It was written an entire generation after the death of Jesus. It was written after the destruction of, or most likely anyway, after the destruction uh, of the temple by Rome. It was written to a generation of Christians who were dealing with the idea that, you know, maybe Jesus isn't going to come back during our lifetime. Maybe it's maybe his return is not quite as urgent as we had anticipated. Maybe we're going to have to learn how to be a community together, how to pass down our our hopes and our dreams and our, our beliefs to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation and become a long-lived community. Maybe this is not just going to be the end of the world here in the next five or ten years. Which certainly if you read, especially in Paul's epistles, I think there are things you can read where it really comes across that at the, at the beginning the church really believed that Jesus was going to come back in their own lifetimes. That um, he was going to to bring about, to bring about uh, the the kind of end of times uh, within their own lifetimes. So John's community now is dealing with a religion that is becoming long-lived. So if we look at, at the, the earliest gospel, the gospel of Mark, the gospel itself is very short. It's very uh, quick. It, you know, it goes from action to action to action. And it ends with Jesus' uh, crucifixion and burial and then that's it. There's no, there's no, um, and, and the empty tomb. But there's no, there's no returning of, of um, Jesus. The end. The the women go to the tomb and it's empty and they run away scared and that's the end. There's there's no there's no return of Jesus to the group. There's no showing of the hands. There's there's no, um, you know, ascension in, into the heavens. Uh, there's there's nothing like that. Matthew and Luke, which are both both we we believe both based on Mark, and then additional um, stories and material. Matthew and Luke both have this kind of ending where Jesus uh, appears to the twelve, and then performs some set of of miracles and appearances and you know visions and things, and then is raised up into heaven, ascends in into heaven. And in fact, I had an, I had a graphic uh, prepared for today of Jesus ascending into heaven before I remembered that that's actually not in John's gospel. In John's gospel, the last one, we don't have that. We don't, we don't have the ascension into heaven. We have Jesus just kind of wandering off at the end of the gospel. You know, he's, we had this story we just read and it says, you know, Jesus appeared to them uh, on the day of his resurrection you know, later in the day, on the day of resurrection, but Thomas wasn't there. And so later when they were all together and Thomas was there, he appeared with Thomas as well. And, uh, to, to demonstrate to Thomas. And then it says that he did lots of other things and those aren't written in the scroll and it just kind of ends. Now there's another chapter to, to John, but it's clear from the way this, this chapter ends and it's written, this was the original ending. The, the chapter that, that follows is a story about, 
the disciples being on a boat and um and them seeing somebody on the on the the land and they and they think it's they they think it's the only who it is and they say he says hey throw this net over the side and pull it in and they pull in a bunch of fish and then it turns out to be Jesus and at the end of that he just leaves uh, again he just just leaves no ascension just goes goes away but this ending was added uh, by the community later on it wasn't in the original text of of John which is really interesting what's my point with this <laughs> well I have two points one is that um, one of the things that, that Thomas is looking for is certainty. Thomas wants to know for sure. He wants to be sure of what, of what has happened. <clears throat> he wants to, he says, no, no, you couldn't have seen Jesus. Jesus is dead. I'm not going to believe that Jesus is risen until I can see the wounds. You know, he wants to be, he wants to be certain. He wants to have answers. But the truth of it is, that our journey is not our, our journey with Jesus and our journey with God is not is often not about the answers. It's often about the questions. It's often about the mystery. In our opening song that we're using right now, "Come On In" by John Mabry, which is a fantastic, uh, fantastic kind of welcoming song to open worship with. One of the things he says is that uh, we invite. Um, we tell you to invite the holy mystery to come in, the holy mystery. So this idea that, that God is unknowable in, in you know in uh, intrinsically unknowable and yet also close to us. That we can both know something of God but yet can never actually know all of God because God is so far beyond our comprehension. This is the same thing that says that you know embrace tells us to embrace the mystery, not worry so much about having the exact answers all the time. And yet there are lots of people, especially in the Christian um, community, who are uh, sure, absolutely sure of the answers. And they, they will tell you them, and they will argue with you against what you believe because they know that they're right. And, and if you're arguing against them, you must be wrong on a lot of, on a lot of things. And certainly, you know, as a universalist, I, I perhaps fall into this in at least one category, and that I believe that, uh, the, you know, God will eventually reconcile all people, uh, and that any kind of punishment after life is is um, meant to be reformative, meant to be, um, you know, to 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 prove our our uh, moral uh, being, so that we can be reconciled to God. Is not just a punitive. Uh, you know, punishment for, for God's pleasure. So, but there's a lot of things like that in the Christian church. People are very focused on the answers instead of on the questions. That's my first thing. And the second thing is that one of these things that people are very focused on a lot of the time is, um, well, I mean, there's several things. One of them is the nature of the risen Christ. What it meant that Christ was, was, had risen from the dead and was standing there with the disciples. And yet, the Gospels are a little bit vague on this. I mean, the, what, what we know, what we, what we can say for sure from looking at the Gospels is that, that Jesus was there. To those uh, disciples standing in that room, they, they saw Jesus there with them. Now, it doesn't say 
in John, it doesn't say that he appeared before them, that he materialized, that he, you know, floated down from heaven or anything like that. It, says, it just says the doors were locked and yet he was there. Um, I spoke to this last week, but this leaves open an interpretation of the text that Jesus was physically there in a physical resurrected body, you know, bodily there with, you know, the, still with the scars on his body from, from the crucifixion. It leaves open an interpretation that the Jesus was there in some kind of spirit, in some kind of spirit presence, spirit body, um, where again, they could see him and, and they could interact with him. Uh, it, it could also be interpretation that that they felt Jesus amongst amongst them, amongst themselves. They saw him there with us in the kind of metaphorical sea. That in their in their gathering together as the body of the church, they saw Jesus among them. They saw his his influence on them. I think we should be open to these different interpretations of this, as I said before. And certainly, I have my own opinions about which one of these is probably true. But this is a this is one of those things, one of those aspects of faith that is is not super important. <laughs> and I, I know it, there, there's a lot of things we think everything is important, but it's not really important for us to know which of these is true. All that's important is for us to know that the community saw Jesus there among them and that that gave them strength to move forward, to continue on after this horrible loss of their their brother and, and their friend. Um, how they saw him and, and in what way is an interesting thing for us to discuss amongst ourselves as Christians. But we should not push each other away or, or cause division or fighting amongst ourselves over this this kind of thing. Another aspect of this, though, that I think people sometimes gloss over, uh, especially folks who are, who are very invested in the idea that the biblical text itself is inerrant, that it is without error, that it is exactly spoken from God into the writer's ear and onto the page, um, is that the Gospel of John contradicts the Synoptic Gospels and the Book of Acts. It does it in several vague ways, but it does it very directly in this reading we just had about Jesus's reappearance. Because in the Synoptic Gospels, in none of the Synoptic Gospels do the apostles uh, receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, Acts tells us that they received the Holy Spirit on Pentecost 50 days after uh, pa after the Passover, fifty days after Jesus's crucifixion, and that's why we that's why we celebrate Pentecost and we celebrate it as the coming of the Holy Spirit and the, the birth of the Church, um, the, the creation of the Church through the giving of the Holy Spirit to the disciples, and that's the famous story of that they they they, they 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 the Holy Spirit came down upon them and it was like flames on their heads, and they were speaking in all of the languages of the world. Some people take this as speaking in tongues, and it's gotten into this this um, ritual uh, thing of, of of speaking in in seemingly unknowable or or random um, words and phrases. 
but the actual text says that they they were speaking all of the languages of the world. That they you know the, the point being they went out into the world and they and they spread the message, and they could speak all these different languages to help them spread the message. But that event, according to Acts, happens fifty days after the death of Jesus, and this event, according to John, happens about a week after the death of Jesus, when they're all together in a room and Jesus appears to them and breathes on the Holy Spirit. Again, in the in Acts, or in you know, uh, Acts is actually the second book of, of Luke, so Luke and Acts go together as a single volume, really. In Luke, at the end of, of this time, Jesus ascends into heaven, and, and you just sit by to sit by God um, in heaven, and then fifty days later, <laughs> you know that the Holy Spirit is given to them, and yet here we have Jesus in, with them in their you know presence a week later, breathing on them the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're very invested in the inerrancy of the biblical text of the, the idea that, that that the text itself is the Word of God and is is you know without error, then you can. You can um, ignore this small discrepancy by just saying that, oh, well, it's just, you know, it's it's just a, a rhetorical method by the author. It's, you know, he they're, they're describing Pentecost here. You know, the exact amount of time, we don't know. You know, they said it was, you know, about a week, but, you know, maybe it was really 50 days. Um, but in my opinion, these are, these are two different tellings, two, two different tellings of the story of how people felt the Holy Spirit come upon them, felt the, the, the desire to go out and spread the message of Jesus in the world after being locked inside and afraid of the Roman authorities. Because in Pentecost too, we had this idea that before the, the Holy Spirit came, they didn't go out and, and preach to the people because they were afraid of the authorities. And in, and in John, we hear they're locked in this room. The doors are locked because they're afraid of the authorities. So they're very similar stories, but I just want to point out that they are different. And there are lot, there's lots of differences in John that people have, have tried to, to work out how they can still be uh, woven into a single, into a single storyline and John can still be accurate. And there are, um, there are books, whole books on this that just look at these, uh, these two, or these four, you know, uh, gospels together. But uh, I think that in this particular case, it's really hard to make this work with the other the other stories. And as I was reading it this week, it just it just hit me about that. This is so different than the other the other stories. And I, I you know, for me, it's not a problem because I don't believe in biblical inerrancy. So I, I don't believe the text is inerrant because I believe the text was written. By people who are trying their best to to do the will of God and, and to write what they have understood and seen of God and of Jesus, and that these texts were chosen because they're authoritative by the community, that they were chosen over time, really in the next couple hundred years, as being the authoritative texts. But I don't think that that's because God spoke into the ear of the author. And I think we can find problems in the text like this one. Anyway, so one thing is clear from the coming of, of Jesus into the, the midst of his disciples after his, his crucifixion and resurrection, and that is that 
he came into their midst. They felt his presence. And that gave them strength to go out into the world and to preach his method, to not be defeated by the Romans and the, the, the Judean authorities who had tried to, to squash uh, his movement, tried to, to silence his movement. They were not um, defeated by them. Instead, Jesus was the victor in this case. God was the victor through Jesus because Jesus' message, Jesus' movement continued despite, despite the attempt by the Roman authorities, despite the attempt by the Judean um, authorities, the religious leaders, uh, to quiet it through an act of, of um, murder of its leader. And I think this is one of the most important lessons of the resurrection, that God was victorious. The God that God through Jesus was victorious over the powers and principalities of the world, over the over the the evil of the of the world, and that God cannot be uh, cannot be defeated by these things, and that through Jesus's presence with us whether that's a spiritual presence or a physical presence, whether we, we feel, whenever we feel Jesus in our hearts together as a community, in that room together, coming together, that Jesus is really there with us and that that is what the church is about. Amen. <laughs>